0: Attention Cannabis Radio listeners! Do you suffer from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD? These are the most common qualifying conditions for medical cannabis. Did you know that in many states you can visit a doctor online, with no waiting rooms, no drive, not even an appointment
1: needed? See a doctor right from your smartphone. It's fast, convenient, and it'll save you money as most states
0: don't collect taxes on medical cannabis purchases. So what are you waiting for? Go to MarijuanaDoctors.com slash Cannabis Radio and get $5 off your on-demand medical card evaluation. Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director... Bobby Black. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. I'm your host, Bobby Black. If there is one city in the world most associated with marijuana, it is undoubtedly Amsterdam. The very mention of the name immediately conjures to mind images of bustling bike lanes, shimmering canals, rows of glowing red lights, and yes, smoke-filled coffee shops. For decades now, the city has been known for its laid-back liberal philosophy towards sex and cannabis. But it was not always this way. The Dutch policy of cannabis tolerance and the coffee shop industry that sprang up around it dates back, like almost every other counterculture institution to a handful of legendary activists and visionaries from the late 1960s and early 70s who pushed back against the laws and norms of their time and paved the way for the thriving cannabis culture that followed. My guest today is one such individual. He's known as the Pot Father, and with good reason. In 1973, he opened Amsterdam's first coffee shop, the Mellow Yellow. In 1980, he started the world's first commercial cannabis seed company, And five years later, he opened Europe's first cannabis grow shop. A decade after that, in 1995, he founded Europe's first medical marijuana foundation. Here to discuss the history of cannabis in Amsterdam and the role he played in it is one of our culture's most influential pioneers, the pot father himself, Mr. Vernard Browning. Vernard, welcome to Canthropology. How are you, sir? (laughs)
1: <laughs> what an introduction uh i'm <laughs> fine thank you bobby i'm fine
0: now did did i pronounce your name correctly is it vernard browning
1: yep actually for an american you you pronounce it pretty good
0: <laughs> okay good because you know i i love the dutch people and culture but i frequently struggle with the language so please forgive me if if my pronunciation yeah, yeah, yeah um no problem so uh, okay, let's. Uh, I want to dive right into uh, your background in history uh, because you are such a pivotal figure in, in the uh, world of cannabis in general, but specifically in Amsterdam and, and the Netherlands. Um, you were you were born and raised in the Dutch colony of New Guinea. Is that is that right?
1: Yep, 1950. And uh, my father worked for the Shell, and uh, every two or three years we had a sort of a, a, a holiday in Holland. And we traveled up and down to the netherlands and so the first 10 years that was sort of my life i lived on new guinea
0: and then so when did you actually move to holland and how old were you
1: uh permanently was in 1960 so with each holiday um i spent a couple of months on a different school in the netherlands and then on the ship or on a boat uh, back to new guinea and there in another class so I've seen a lot of schools, and I've been in a lot of classes.
0: <laughs> what yeah. part of Holland did you live in? It wasn't in Amsterdam, right? It was... Amsterdam. Oh, it was? Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, mainly Amsterdam. I mean, I, I lived in other parts also, in, in Delft-Saal and of soam but you, you won't know them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I read somewhere that you originally wanted to be a teacher, but that you changed your mind after smoking your first joint. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was on a teacher's school, And it was the second year, I think, yeah, second year, 1969, something around that time. And it was a time of a lot of uh, uh, revolutionary activities in Europe. Uh, And um, they wanted to do something similar on the school we were on for for the teachers. But then I smoked a joint, I learned to smoke cannabis. And I looked around and I thought something is wrong with this school. I don't know exactly what. But it's not for me. And, and the thing was that uh, school teachers, regular school teachers, depends on the level, of course. But in the first instance, they just train you to listen to other people. And that was something that I really don't like.
0: <laughs> uh, can, yeah. can you tell us about your first experiences with cannabis? What were the circumstances and what was it like? Well, there was this group
1: of uh, revolutionaries uh, who were uh, uh, trying to uh, um, how do you call it uh, throw over school systems all over Europe. and it was an Amsterdam student, uh, um, how do you call it uh, foundation, something like that and, and they smoked they smoked cannabis and they taught me how to smoke it, uh, smoke it hash eh, in those days. Uh, so I started to smoke hash and after a half a year or so, I really started to have the idea that uh, something was completely wrong with that school and with the choice I made. And in 1970, I dropped out of school and um, dropped in the hippie scene, let's say, and uh, stayed there the rest of my life until now.
0: (laughs) What was the hippie scene like in Amsterdam back then?
1: I guess uh, kind of similar as it was in the States. So it was just a group of people that knew each other and there was always somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody where you could buy it cheaply something like that uh, and the idea in those days was that you would buy for a couple hundred guilders and then spread it amongst your friends in order to have a piece for yourself for free um, and that was kind of a, a game or a sport or how do you want to call it yeah. so um, i like that and i, I actually never paid in my life for uh, for cannabis
0: <laughs> well that's <laughs> so, great so one of the, uh, some of the people that were involved in that uh, hippie kind of revolution in Amsterdam were the provosts, right? Uh, that was a political right. movement that was uh, pro-cannabis. Can you tell our listeners a little about the provosts, who they were and what they were about?
1: Well, the provosts were a bit older than me, so I didn't have that much uh, contact with them. But they were, uh, like the word said, they were provocating. And they were provocating authorities, but in a nice way. So they did things like hand out raisins on the street, you know, and the police would come out and, and, and think that there was something revolutionary going on and uh, they would arrest people and hit them and whatever, and, and that way create an environment that was uh, ready to, um, uh, for revolutionary thoughts. Um, so Provo actually means provocating authorities. And, and that worked very well because the authorities in those days, they were pretty uptight. I mean, they measured even the length of your skirts, you know, uh, girls. The skirts uh, were not allowed to be too short and only so many centimeters under the knee, maximum, and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: yeah, se- and- seems so strange knowing, uh, you know, having gone to Amsterdam from the 90s, mid-90s on, Knowing that in my mind the Dutch were such tolerant and and easygoing people, it seems a little weird to hear that, you know.
1: Yeah, but in the beginning they were were very uptight, and thanks to uh, people like the Provo, uh, everything changed gradually. I mean, people started to realize that it was kind of foolish to to measure a girl's skirt length by uh, by policemen and actually the same thing uh, is still going on. But then with the cannabis prohibition, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the police in, gets involved in what did you smoke last night, sir? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's none of their fucking business <laughs> and, and it's ridiculous. It's another way to try to control what's going on in people's minds. Yeah. In the old days, it was a religion and these days it's it's the drugs. Yeah. And thank's god that this that era is coming to an end.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh so just to, going back to the provost Provos for a second. Uh so I know that Jasper Grootveld was one of the main uh guys in the provost, but there was also his partner uh who I know was a good friend of yours, uh someone I had the good fortune of meeting and interviewing uh years ago, uh Kees Hokert. Um and yep. and and Kees uh on his boat, the White Raven, uh his houseboat, mm-hmm. he was started this thing called the lowland weed company and I know that you yep. know all about that he it, he basically started growing weed on the on the roof of his boat like right out in the open. can you tell us a little about keys and 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 what he was doing with the lowland weed company?
1: Yeah so what case did was uh, uh, prolong the tradition of the provost so to provocate uh, authorities but in such a way that they would make themselves ridiculous if they reacted. So what Case did was he bought a kilo of uh, ordinary hemp seeds that are used to feed pigeons and uh, (laughs) uh, started to grow little plants out of them, uh, showing that it wasn't for real. I mean, it was just pigeon hemp seeds. (laughs) And he was selling them for a gilder each. And the idea was that it was only symbolic and that it looked like marijuana plants, but yeah, you couldn't smoke them. And the idea was he wanted to provocate uh the police to react but police already learned from the provo era so they just let him on let him have his way you know and they said oh case is a nice guy and he (laughs) he was an ex-teacher too and he just means to to set an example you know and the example was that you can't stop cannabis you can't stop cannabis growing because everybody can grow it everywhere and the more Uh, you make it illegal the higher the price will get the more interesting it will become to just do it anyway and that that was the message of Case and uh, on the side uh, there was a boat 100 meters further away uh, where a friend of his uh, uh, lived and it was an an American guy and um, whenever people came to Case's boat to buy marijuana they just went to the other boat and, and, and bought something so that was sort of the machine.
0: <laughs> was that the guy Mickey, he called Mickey guy, Mouse? Yeah, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah,
1: Mickey, <laughs> Mickey. And uh, I, I, I got to meet Case because he sent somebody to my coffee shop. It uh, was in 1973. And he said, uh, that guy uh, came to me and he said, well, uh, Case wants to talk to you. And Case said to me, you have a coffee shop? Yep. And uh, you know about hash and grass? Yep. Can you help me to some grass? Yep. Indonesian grass, and it was like 1,500 guilders a kilo or something like that. So I started to supply case and, and Mickey, of course, with the Indonesian grass. Oh. And that's how we really got to meet.
0: Yeah. And I know – so uh, down below deck in his boat, he would offer people – he had his own kind of little tea house where he would uh, get people high, right? He would invite people down, and they would hang out and get high and, and, and drink tea. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and have a nice time. And that that is the, the thing – um, in Holland, it works like this, that if you do things in a nice way, uh, people are much more, uh, how do you call it? Tolerant. And then Casey just like to, uh, teach people that you can look at things from a different point of view, especially when you take a few hits, then, then you realize, geez, you know, the world looks a little bit different than the newspapers and the politicians try to make me believe. Um, and yeah, it was a a real nice time, really open and everybody was trying different ideas and it was a very, very positive time.
0: Yeah, I, I remember I wrote a, an article for High Times uh, a few years back about uh, Keys and the and the Lowland Weed Company, and I spoke to you about it at the time, and you told me that there was even a bus tour called the Magic Bus that would stop yeah. at Keyes' boat, and tourists would get out and have a cup of marijuana tea with him. Like,
1: that's... Yeah, and get wasted, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and listen to a speech of Case. Keyes was really good at making speeches. And, uh, uh, yeah, the, the main thing that you sell or – He wasn't selling uh, cannabis, but uh, Mickey did. I mean, uh, not Case, but he was mainly selling an idea, promoting a lifestyle. And that is something that I learned from Case. So uh, later in my life, whatever I was doing, whether it was uh, a coffee shop or seeds or growing or nowadays with medical marijuana, uh, yes, I do sell things at the same time. But the main thing I feel I sell is an example, is a lifestyle. And uh, the lifestyle uh, is, I think, more important than the goods. The idea are more, the ideas are more important than the goodies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I also read that you uh, and some of your friends before before you got o- opened the coffee shop, you were part of a, you ran a youth center called Second Home. Now I I also read that youth centers were where people were buying weed at the time. Is that true?
1: Um. Yeah. We didn't sell weed. We just supplied ourselves and our friends. And and the idea was that if you came to our youth center, second home, that there was always somebody who had something to sell, you know, and uh, uh, whatever the profit was, we shared it by smoking it for free. And when I I was one of those people.
0: (laughs) When I spoke to Keys (laughs) that time, he mentioned to me that when he started out, there really wasn't uh, cannabis in Amsterdam. It was all hash. It was all coming from Morocco yeah. and Afghanistan, but there wasn't any actual plant. And then that was yeah. one of the things I think he was trying to change was to like, bring the plant, uh, you know, bring the actual flower into it.
1: Yeah. And that's, uh, he brought that to any, everybody's attention. In those days, only black people and uh, jazz musicians were smoking cannabis, but the Dutch, they didn't know too much about it. They, all they knew was hash. And and they mixed it with uh, tobacco. So did I in those days until I uh, got in touch with the Indonesian grass. And uh, we were selling Indonesian grass in, in my coffee shop. And yeah, when something is cheap for you I and mean, it didn't cost me any money, r- really, uh, then you start to smoke pure. And that's what I did. So in 78, I stopped smoking tobacco. Yeah, and just smoke grass and and case case is a really important figure because his lifestyle got copied a lot by a lot of people and he was very influential
0: yeah absolutely i again i'll say it again i was so You know, working at High Times, uh, you know, for years, I thought I knew who most of the important people in cannabis were, and I had never heard of him. I I had never heard of him. And then someone uh, I met, a a Dutch man, uh, told me about him and said, I'm friends with him. I'll introduce you to him if you want. And so one year when I was at the Cannabis Cup, I I went with uh, this guy, uh, Jan, and he took me to the boat. And I got to meet Kays and sat down and talked with him for a while and, and, and interviewed him and It was, you know, Jan had to uh, uh, translate a lot of it because he was speaking mostly in Dutch. But uh, it was just a wild experience, and I could tell right away that he was quite a character, and and, uh, I was very, very happy I got to meet him.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was actually a teacher in French, French language. Oh, okay. But um, he he was the ideal teacher. I mean, he could uh, uh, communicate emotions, uh, and he was very uh, keen with language. So for the Dutch, it was, uh, it was a very good example. Yeah. He's was a very good teacher. Yeah. So in
0: 1973, you and I believe three of your friends decided to open your own cannabis tea house in an abandoned bakery, mm-hmm. uh, and you called it mm-hmm. the Mellow Yellow, uh, named after the song by Donovan. Can you tell us, uh, mm-hmm. tell us the story of how all that came together?
1: Well, um, I was living in this group of uh, friends for three years uh, at that time, And we had a lot of other friends come over and buy some hash from us. So um, we would share it with them. And ourselves, we always had a smoke for free. And we gave our guests always a cup of tea because, uh, um, yeah, that was cheap cheap, and easy. And we would joke about it and say, oh, later we'll just open up a coffee shop or a tea house or whatever and uh, sell tea so we don't need to work for... An agency or a boss and at the same time we have a free uh, free smoke continuously so that was sort of a, a joke and um in 1973 we did get hold of a place and uh, yeah we just turned it into a tea house and so we called it a tea house or a coffee shop and uh, we named it mellow yellow because Mellow Yellow is all about when you have nothing to smoke anymore, you can bake banana peels and it seems that you can get high if you smoke them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That was the, the clue behind the Donovan song. And we thought that uh, every smoker would know the hidden story behind it and all the regular people, you know, the people that can bother you uh, as a smoker, didn't know what it was all about and just <laughs> thought, oh, it's a nice song. So we set Mellow Yellow on the window, and uh, everybody was talking about it, and uh, it gave us a lot of friends, a lot of new friends, a <laughs> lot of customers. <laughs>
0: yeah, so uh, I read that you uh, you had a lot of um, uh, rules for the customers uh, who would come in, certain things like you, you, wouldn't, you couldn't say you to the people that worked there, and, and also I read that you, you kind of were a little segregated, like you tried to keep certain groups of people uh, separate in the shop.
1: Yeah. So uh, in in Dutch, we have a difference between uh, you and you, you is uh, amongst friends and you in Dutch is uh, when you as if you call somebody, sir, you know, and uh, if young kids would come in our shop and would call us, you, Mr. Yeah, we would say, hey, you're too young. Go out (laughs) and get away. (laughs) I get it. Uh, Yeah, it was very simple. Um, And the other thing was indeed true. We had uh, three or four we had four different sets of tables and um in order to avoid that the whole place would be filled either with moroccans or with uh, uh people from uh, suriname or with um, whatever turkish people we would say okay one table for the turkish people one table for the moroccan people one table for the tourists and one for the dutch etc and um, the idea was if the table was full then you were kindly requested uh, to go away immediately and uh, yeah people understood it because uh, when the whole place would be taken over by a certain group of people the fun would go away and we like to keep it a light atmosphere um, acceptable for everybody
0: yeah And so, so how did it work with the customers? I, I, I believe that uh, the people who sell it, were selling it were disguised as customers. They weren't like selling it from behind the counter or anything, right?
1: Well, it, it, it was one of us, of course, one of the original four. And later on, we started to employ people. But the idea was that in those days, there wasn't a law that would allow the government to close a shop just because somebody was found in that shop, a customer who was obviously selling hash and grass. So one of us would sit in front of the bar pretending he was just a passerby. And this passerby, this guest had a big bag, big leather bag with uh, several sections, and they were all filled with uh, several kinds of hash and grass. And the law was, was like that, uh, like that in those days. That um, the only thing police could do was arrest this house dealer. And uh, yeah, the house dealer was set free after a couple hours, and that was it. Uh, So that was sort of a a trick we played for years. And uh, um, yeah, it worked pretty well.
0: And you guys. We had a
1: couple of busts, but uh, nothing serious.
0: Yeah, you you didn't have too much trouble from police, right?
1: No, no.
0: And you guys did something that I guess hasn't wasn't being done at the time, which was selling the hash and the weed in prepackaged see-through bags, which were for specific prices. Now, that wasn't being done at the time, right?
1: Yeah. No, in, the, in those t- days, you had uh, locations where you could buy hash or grass even. But uh, there were usually a lot of dealers, and they all had different prices, and you had to negotiate with them about the price, and uh, say, okay, if I buy 25 guilders, what do I pay And Okay, and if I, pay 50, if I buy 50 guilders, what do I get for price? And things like that, and that could take quite a while and it made it all very difficult. Um, and what we did was, because we just had one house dealer, we just pre-bagged everything in 10 and 25 guilder deals in plastic bags so that everybody could be assured that they were paying the same price. Uh, and that meant that almost everybody could just come into our shop and say, okay, what do you got? And the dealer would sum up what he had, Afghan, and Nepalese, uh, Lebanon, Moroccan. And then you just had to repeat one word even when you didn't know what it was. <laughs> so you would say, okay, uh, let me see some Moroccan. And the dealer would show you some Moroccan bags and you could pick out the one that you like. And, and that made uh, scoring hash and grass really easy. And it was also new because it was in plastic um, and the old timers uh, didn't like it at all. They said, oh, a, a real hippie will never uh, uh, want to buy pre bagged has or grass. They want to uh, argue about the price and negotiate <laughs> and all these kinds of things. And we said, nah, we don't have the time. We want to play table football, you know, so uh, <laughs> tell, tell us what you want and that's it. <laughs> And that was another rule. If the dealer was playing table football, you had to wait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I, I imagine the shop was probably very popular. You probably had a lot of people coming in on the regular. Did you have mostly locals or foreigners?
1: Um, we, we always maintained a pleasant mix. So um, we weren't in it for the money, but for the fun. Um, so in the beginning, we were open 12 o'clock in the afternoon until 12 o'clock at night. And because it got so busy, uh, we shrinked, we limited the opening hours until to 6 o'clock in the afternoon until 12 o'clock at night. And uh, when that even then it got too busy, I mean, sometimes there was a row of people in front of the dealer and that row would go all the way up to the, to the outside, you know, and outside were, still, were another 30 people in line waiting. And then we knew we had to do something about it because if police would see that, they had to react. So, uh, we had a system in which the dealer um, went away uh, after he had, he serviced the most people. He went away for half an hour or so, and he would just uh, disappear somewhere in the building. Yeah. And uh, whenever people would come, we would say, "Oh, the dealer—he's just gone. He's just gone. You just missed him." But you know, here's a little piece of Moroccan. Uh, go upstairs, have a smoke, share it with some other people who are waiting also, and uh, he'll come back. And whenever the the shop was full again we just had this intercom and we would say okay peter come on down <laughs> <laughs> and the dealer would come down and everybody was happy and oh there he is <laughs> so it was always a little bit um, yeah there was always something happening because uh when people would get home they would say oh i had to wait five or ten minutes but i had a real nice chat with somebody who i shared a joint with and blah 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 you know and, yeah. and that was uh, the main thing because we weren't in it for the selling and the money. We were in it for a mix of all those things.
0: Yeah, the the free and smoke, yeah, are, the company of the yeah. people and all that stuff, right?
1: Yeah, the, the social thing was very important for us. And and that was a guarantee for business success as well because everybody likes to be in a nice environment, no?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Where So where were you getting your stock from? Were you smuggling at all or were you just buying it from, from smugglers?
1: buying it from people no buying it from dealers because uh uh, in those days you had a real system of smugglers who were selling it to dealers and they were selling it to local kilo dealers and um, yeah it was just a matter of maintaining a network of friends you knew who were uh, selling uh, buying and selling 50 100 kilos at a time and then selling it out in a a couple of weeks and um, yeah, it was just a matter of uh, getting to know people and then making your phone calls every morning and see what was going on. And if something interesting came in and, um, yeah, uh, because we had so many varieties, uh, it was, uh, important to get the best price and what I did or, or what you had to do was to, uh, to buy five kilos, uh, and then ask how much would it be if I buy 10? And then the price would go down considerably. Sure. So what I used to do was buy buy 10 kilos and then have a friend of mine drive it around and and sell five or six to other coffee shops and have a couple of kilos for our shop, but really cheap. And that was sort of the the next thing that you had to do. (laughs) And um, after a while, I realized that it was really running out of hand. And then I was doing like 100 kilos a day. Oh, wow. And then I said to, uh, "Yeah, I said to my friends, hey, wait a minute. This has gone too far. I mean, I don't want to. I'll, I'll stop this thing. Because it was <laughs> like a machine. It, it really went well. And and I had to, this guy who was driving it around, delivering it to other shops. And the blah, 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 whole system. But then I thought, yeah, uh, I look almost like an ordinary uh, drug dealer. And I don't want to do that, you
0: know. <laughs> sure. I just sure.
1: want to get. Good products for my shop at the best price, because the lower the price is, the cheaper you can sell it to to a customer.
0: Of course, of course. You know, in my research, I came across two names when I was looking at uh, who you know who you were involved with as far as that. One name was Caesar, and the other was Klaas Brunsma. Uh, can you tell yeah. me a little about uh, those guys?
1: Um, well, were they Caesar was, uh, Yeah, Caesar was uh, the way his name suggests. He was a, a, a classy guy <laughs> who always used to have the best uh, products. And um, he was sort of a teacher as well because he taught us how to behave. And uh, he really uh, was an example and he really had the best quality. And Klaas Breisbach was also in a way a teacher because he taught us what not to do. And, and what not to do was getting bigger and bigger and uh, trying to uh, uh, become the biggest in town and things like that. And uh, that was the wrong way to go. Uh, I had a discussion with him about it. Uh, when I saw that he had a, a gun on his ankle, uh, he, came, he came to my house, to deliver uh, something. And uh, we had a chat. And I saw he had a gun tied to his ankle. I said, what's that? He says, yeah, you need that these days. I was <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not right. That is your, your personal choice. You don't you don't have to do business with uh, dangerous people. Uh, yeah, but then uh, you can't buy enough and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, hey, I don't like this uh, this uh, way of doing things. And I think that no matter what, after a while, you get into trouble. And that's what he did. He, he got into serious trouble and uh, no. somebody shot him and whatever. But in the beginning, they were even class, was was a nice group of people. I mean, they would come to my house and say, okay, Here's ten kilos. Get it out of the trunk from there, from their BMW, old BMW. And then later I would weigh the stuff, and I would find out that each plaque was a little bit heavier. So they didn't give me ten kilos, but eleven. <laughs> I would phone them and say, "Hey, you gave me a kilo to watch. And they were like, "Ah, oh, it's okay. You can keep the keep the change." <laughs>
0: so
1: so <That's> cool. <laughs> those yeah. those were the hippie days. <laughs> yeah, that's how they were in the beginning. And later on, they uh, yeah they, they they turned it to. Little uh,
0: little monsters, maybe. <laughs> so um, there's, uh, I want to clear this up because there's, uh, there's a well-known misunderstanding about which coffee shop was really the first one in Amsterdam. Now, I always kn- knew it to be Mellow Yellow. Um, and then, of course, uh, Hank DeVries claims that the Bulldog, his shop, was the first one. And I've also heard that Roosland actually opened their doors before the Bulldogs. So in, in your mind, what's yep. the real story? How do you see it?
1: The real story is that there is sort of a development. Um, I mean, we were the first uh, place, coffee shop, tea house, no matter how you want to call it. I like to call it the tea house because it sounds soft to the outside world. But the people who used to work for me called it the coffee shop. Um, and uh, we were the first place where you had one dealer who had uh, everything pre-bagged and uh, you did not needed to bother about the price. But we were kind of hush-hush. We liked to keep things hush-hush. And what uh, Case of oh, sorry, what Hank and uh, Martin from the Rusland did was they were much more open. Uh, they used to come to my place and see how we were doing things, and they thought, "Geez, you know, these hippie guys—they have a good. Uh, they found a good scheme. They found a pot of gold, and uh, what they do, we can also do, it, and we can do it better." So they improved the system. Uh, they opened up early in the morning until 8 o'clock at night and you didn't have to wait. You could just run in and run out of, out of the shop in, in a couple of minutes and uh, they sort of uh, made the coffee shop formula much more mature.
0: They made it more of like a business. That, that more is of More business-like.
1: Yeah. Uh, more business-like. For us, it was more of a hobby and, and we just uh, like to play table football and get high for free and things like that. And yeah, of course, make money, but that wasn't the main thing. As, as hippie, you always have the idea that money is not the issue. It's something that comes along with uh, uh, setting a right example automatically. And money can often be more of a problem and a nuisance than anything else.
0: Yeah. And because y-
1: when you make too much money, you get you attract the wrong kind of people.
0: Yeah, sure. And you were you were friends with these guys, right? You weren't like rivals.
1: No, no, I was friends with them. And um, later on, after 78, 79, 80, 80 uh, when I started to really become involved um, in, uh, in uh, uh, growing cannabis in Holland, um, I was selling to these guys. So already in 78, um, I started to sell to sell Indonesian grass to them, and later on Colombian grass and things like that. And after 1980, I started to uh, sell them uh, American sensibilia and Dutch sensibilia and trying to convince them that they should sell Dutch grass because it would be much better for everybody involved if uh, the coffee shops uh, didn't need it, were not depending on the legal import. But uh, we I was telling them that grass was a much better deal, uh, cheaper THC than the hash, and it was better for customers. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that they knew me and I knew them, uh, yeah. Yeah. No. But
0: I could sell them a lot of kilos. <laughs> cool. I'm going to I'm gonna get to the growing stuff in, in a moment. Um, I just want to uh, go back for a second. So I know in 1976 is when the Dutch government decided to make a big change in their drug laws, and they separated everything into two classes, hard drugs and soft drugs. And ca- yep. cannabis products, hash and marijuana, were under the soft drugs. So what, what caused them to make that change, and what effect did that have on the cannabis scene in Amsterdam?
1: Well, there was a a minister of justice in those days and he was called Van Acht and he was raised uh, by the Jesuits. Uh, Jesuits priests, they are very practical. And for him, it was kind of ridiculous to pursue ordinary people, students and young people, just because they were smoking a joint, which which was relatively new in those days. Uh, And he said, well, let's make a difference between Just consumers and people who are selling and then people who are really selling. So whenever you would uh, have uh, maximum 30 grams, they would consider it as for private use. And that means that it's still not uh, a big thing when you have a couple hundred grams. I mean, what's the difference? But when you were involved in selling hundreds hundreds of kilos, yeah, then you were really... On uh, um, how do you call it, disobeying the law, and that yeah. mm, he made that difference. So it was very practical, yeah. And it created a much more liberal atmosphere because suddenly all the coffee shop people knew that they, as long as they stayed under that umbrella, uh, they were relatively safe.
0: So more and more coffee shops were beginning to open at this point.
1: Yep, yep, fifteen hundred at a certain. Uh, at a certain time we we had about 1500 coffee shops in Holland
0: yeah well so I know I know in 1978 uh, the Mellow Yellow burned down Um, do you know what the cause was was it an accident or was there some foul play behind it or
1: I have no idea
0: you never you never found out
1: Mm, and I wouldn't want to find it out either (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you don't have to ask too many things you know uh, for me, it was a good occasion to start something new. Uh, sure. we, had con- we had thoughts about continuing the shop, but yeah, it wasn't really uh, a pleasant idea, and it was already getting very busy. I had other things to do. And um, yeah, so I decided that it was a good time to um, honor an invitation I had from an American customer uh, and that was, uh, if I would ever be in the, in the States, just call him or visit him. And that's what I did. I went to the States uh, for a holiday.
0: I want to get to that the, in our next segment. On
1: the Twin Towers. <laughs>
0: oh, wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. I want to get yeah. to that in a second in our next segment. But before we go uh, to that, I want to just ask, so I know that Mellow Yellow did reopen at some point uh, under new ownership. Can you tell me a little about who, who reopened it and, and how they got the rights to the name or whatever?
1: Um. They just reopened it and I didn't mind. I mean, as a hippie, I don't care. You know, I was happy that somebody else uh, kept the name alive. And I sort of vaguely knew the people, but I never had any business with them or whatever. And um, uh, I was really happy that the place looked kind of like Mellow Yellow. So they had a table football machine. And for me, that was uh, pleasant because then I had another dress where I could go down (laughs) and have a (laughs) play some table football. And, and that was it I mean uh, we as the, uh, the first yellow Yellow was co- kind of outside the city center and that was uh, deliberately um, and the uh, Bulldog and uh, uh, Rusland and all those other shops they were mainly in the center and we always thought yeah it's interesting for business but it's not so nice to do because you attract a lot of tourists you attract a lot of police and a lot of publicity, and what for,
0: you know? Sure. All right, uh, I need to pause for a second for a quick uh, commercial break, but please stick around, everyone, because we'll be right back with more from Vernard Browning here on Canthropology. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah.
1: You should enjoy life rather than be afraid of it, because cannabis can open your mind for uh, the other reality, because the reality that we live in is just a reality that looks real because so many people pretend it is real. People are afraid of things that they don't know. They become very uh, aggressive and violent against it.
0: All right, and welcome back to Canthropology. Uh, My guest this week is Amsterdam's pot father himself, Mr. Bernard Bröning, Uh, And before the break, we had left off where your shop, the Mellow Yellow, had just burned down, and you had decided to accept the invitation of an American friend to uh, go on an adventure to America in search of Sens Amelia. Can you tell us – who who was that friend and and tell us about that adventure?
1: Oh, let's just keep calling him a friend. Okay. And this friend introduced me to other friends. You know how how it goes (laughs) in the States. (laughs) <laughs> for me that was kind of new because we were always very open but these people they were in Dutch we would say they were paranoid but with the reason of course I mean there were people who didn't have a phone in their house or would not come near anybody else who had a phone in his house things like that and we thought I thought it was kind of paranoid but yeah, obviously, that was necessary in those days. Yeah. Um, and this friend introduced me to other friends, etc., cetera, et cetera. And I um, for the first time, I saw uh, white folks, uh, Americans who were growing cannabis. And that was really new to me because uh, in the old days, uh, cannabis was coming from third world countries and that was grown by locals. So locals in, uh, in Nigeria or in Indonesia or uh, Colombia, but never never uh, white folks, Western folks. And, and what I um, got to know was that if you used specific seeds and if you uh, removed the males in time, the females would flower abundantly. And if you would harvest those flowers at the right time, Carefully dry them, carefully clean them, carefully package them in plastic, uh, you would get a product that was called Sensimilia, without thousands of seeds, since without, huh? millia thousands, uh, without seeds. And uh, that this product was very good, but also uh, worth a lot of money. And that was also new because in those days, like I said, Indonesian grass would be about 1,500 guilders a kilo, and now I ran into these Americans, and and they told me that in the States uh, a kilo of good school would cost around five 000, six thousand dollars, <laughs> you know, and and that was new. So um, I during that holiday uh, I got to see uh, a lot of people smoked a lot of grass, and uh, we were fantasizing about Amsterdam. They were saying, oh, you're from Amsterdam, right? Oh, yeah, great. And you have all these coffee shops. And I was like, yeah, 1,500. <laughs> they were like, wow. But that, that must be heaven. And I told them, well, it, it's okay. But uh, don't underestimate yourself. Because what you got over here, we don't got. I mean, you got the best grass in the world. And, and we don't have that. We're, we're smoking dried out Indonesian grass, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, is this was this in Northern California that you went?
1: Bags. No, no, I never went to California or later. But the beginning, I was just on the East Coast.
0: Oh, okay. And okay.
1: The, the product was brought over there, and I was I struggled or whatever. I don't know how, how it got there, but um, it was my first uh, uh, how do you call it? acquaintance with this product. I was fantasizing about uh, this product, smoking it, and they were saying geez, you know, uh, we would love to come see an Amsterdam because it's nice coffee shop and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what, if you come on over and teach us how to grow this cannabis, uh, people can have almost free smoke and what they got extra, they can sell to coffee shops, so they don't need to import all the time, that would really help us. So a couple of these Americans came over in 1980 and the first was uh, all that He was an old man he was an old grower and he was growing cannabis in oregon but he just got busted the year before something like that and he was willing to come on over to the netherlands and um, teach us how to grow and bring his old his own seeds and old ed stayed in my house for i think four or five years or so each year at the end of the season he would go back home uh, for Christmas, but uh, when it was uh, season to grow cannabis, he was uh, in Holland and he stayed in my house. It was a re- real nice time from 1980 until 85, something like that.
0: That's Old Ed Holloway, uh, and he. Uh, yep. Yeah, and so he was the guy who basically kind of taught you how to grow, and he brought genetics from the states there.
1: Yeah, his own genetics, and together with a couple of friends, we formed uh, a group of people. And we called ourselves the green team and the green team uh, they were mainly interested in smoking this wonderful green so you had to do something to do, to get it for free you either sell it or you produce it and then the best thing is of course if you produce it and sell it uh, so that's what we started to do and our fantasy was that um, i only agreed to cooperate with this thing on one condition that i was allowed to uh, tell, to tell all the Dutch people the our secrets. So our secrets about what kind of seeds you needed, how you needed to grow uh, and how you could, uh, you know, um, have a free smoke for yourself. And then I agreed to be part of the green team and the green team was uh, growing cannabis all over Holland. And I was the, the, the last uh, station. I was selling it to the coffee shops because the coffee shops all knew me. When I said to them, "You have to try this," they would try it. Yeah, were
0: That's you guys were you guys selling seeds and genetics too, or just selling the weed to the coffee shops?
1: Uh, I was selling the the weed to the coffee shops, but at the same time, I started with Case Hooker uh, a separate company called Lowland Seed Company, and the seed company uh, was selling the seeds from all that. Uh, so I played the game in two ways. I said to people. You know, you can grow this wonderful cannabis, um, go to a coffee shop, go to the bulldog, go to the restaurant and you'll pay like 10 euros or 10 guilders a gram for it. But you can also grow them yourself. Here's the seed and it costs you a guilder. <laughs> uh, and that's how it worked because when people realized that, uh, that it was profitable, they started to grow.
0: Yeah. What were some of the strains that you guys were growing and, and selling?
1: I don't know most of the names anymore but uh we had a, a, a purple um uh old ed seeds um I don't know the Holland's hope <laughs> yeah Holland's hope uh we, we had a lot of names and and later it became numbers yeah and and as we were growing each year we grew a little bit more. The first year was like a couple of kilos and then 10 kilos and hundred kilos and a couple of other kilos. And uh, each year the green team expanded until in 1984, I think it got so big and it got uh, different American associates who joined the team and they were talking about expanding, of course, American style and, and growing in greenhouses and not one greenhouse, but a couple of greenhouses. And then I thought to myself, oh, it's time to leave again. My job <laughs> is finished. So, you, <laughs> Somebody so, else can do this as well and better than me.
0: Yeah, yeah. So two, two of the people that were, came over and were part of the Green Team are some very legendary names, uh, Ed Rosenthal and Sam the Skunkman. Um, and so for, for mm-hmm. the benefit of our listeners who aren't uh, as familiar with these names, can you explain uh, how did you come to meet and work with these two legendary characters and why were they so significant?
1: Well, after a couple of years, we realized that we needed some more knowledge. Uh, Old Ed taught us a certain style, but he wasn't uh, um, a knowledgeable guy, let's say. We needed some more uh, basic knowledge, and uh, we had a a choice between um, Ed Rosenthal and a guy who created Skunk, and he was called the Skunk Man. So we agreed, uh, the green team agreed, to send them both uh, a ticket, uh, and invite him to come over and, uh, and meet us, and they did. Um, and then we made a choice between uh, either the more commercial side with uh, the Skunk Band or the more uh, idealistic side with Ed Rosenthal. And uh, it got to be uh, the Skunk Band, and for me that was the signal to leave the team because I wasn't interested in uh, making money.
0: Oh, so he came in just as you were kind of stepping out.
1: Well, because he came in, uh, there was sort of a vote in the green team with uh, uh, which one of the two guys shall we continue, at Rosenthal or with the Skunkman? And at Rosenthal was more a theoretical guy and he wrote books and things like that. But the Skunkman was a very practical guy and he created this new variety called Skunk. And he was really in favor of growing the Skunk indoors in greenhouses and under artificial lights. Um, and yeah, the green team went for the commercial choice and that was uh, with the skunk man. And for me, that was a signal to get out of the team because yeah, uh, I thought that after four or five years working with all that, uh, Dutch cannabis was really picking up and a lot of people started to grow it. And my involvement was not necessary anymore, uh, especially not when it would turn into a commercial operation yeah, they wanted to start a greenhouse of 5,000 square meters. And then they were saying, well, one greenhouse isn't enough. We need a couple. We need fun. Yeah. Yeah, American style. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay guys, have fun, but I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Skunk definitely changed the game, though I know in in genetics in, yep. in in Holland and around the world, really. Um, and then there's one more name. Uh, that, that's a a very legendary figure that um and and I don't I don't think you worked with him, but you probably knew him, which was Neville Neville Schumacher's. Ah, um,
1: uh, Neville Schoenmakers Yeah. Can you can Neville you tell us a little
0: about uh, Neville? What you knew about yeah, him?
1: Yeah, it was a funny story. Uh, he called me. Uh, I think in '83 or something like that. And he said, uh, well, I'm Neville Schubaker, and I want to really start to sell seeds to American tourists. Uh, I know some people from high times, and blah, 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 blah. Can I have a chat with you? And I said, oh, sure, come on over. So he came over to my house, and we had a chat. And I said to him, well, you know, uh, when you get involved with high times, and when you are starting to sell seeds to Americans, eventually you'll get into trouble. Uh, and he said, oh, I don't mind, but I can make billions in And I was like, yeah, sure. But that's not really interesting. I mean, uh, you can make a lot of money too, doing it much more um, carefully and uh, not so openly. Hey, I want to make money. Okay. <laughs> um, and I told him, okay, I'll tell you everything. He, he asked me. Uh, can you sell me some seeds? Can you give me an explanation on how to do this, how to do that? He had sort of um, uh, an outcaring, how do you call that, where you get money from the government. How do I uh, present them with the fact that I'm selling cannabis and how should I arrange that with uh, the government and uh, the tax man, blah, blah, blah. And and I said, well, I'll tell you everything I, I, I know and what can help you. I'll tell you how to make seeds and blah, blah, blah. But let's make a deal. And that is that you only sell your seeds to foreigners and I only sell my seeds to the Dutch people. So don't sell your seats in Holland as well because uh, it will sort of get messy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we shook hands on it and we sort of divided the world for ourselves. You know, he, <laughs> I would get Holland and he would get the rest of the world. And, and uh, he was happy with the deal and so was I and uh, it uh, brought him a lot of money and it saved me a lot of trouble yeah and i got what i wanted and that was to turn holland into the jamaica of europe huh?
0: yeah <laughs> so have you did you remain friends with uh, skunk man and ed rosenthal over the years or no
1: oh uh, ed rosenthal yeah i've seen uh, i've seen ed later That was in 19 uh, in 2009 i think uh, I went to America, and, and then I made it to the West Coast, and I ran into Ed there, and had a, had a chat at his house, and things like that, so it was nice, and the skunk man, I, I see him every now and then, I've seen him on, on high times uh, uh, events, and things like that, and run into him every now and then, uh, it's okay, I mean, he's got a burden of his own, a lot to carry, and um, I wish him a lot of luck. <laughs> and a lot of good fortune, Yeah. and he does. Uh, he's a very important figure, and he's unstoppable, you know, he's got this huge amount of energy, uh, the way some Americans do, but uh, I'm a much more introvert person, so,
0: yeah. yeah. All right, <laughs> uh, we're going to take another quick commercial break, so stick around, we'll be right back with more from Bernard Bruning here on Canthropology.
1: 2000- garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. I think uh, the most important thing is to be happy with yourself because if you're not happy with yourself, you can't be happy with somebody else. Uh, And I think uh, important things are that you need to do something with this life because you're not here on this earth to collect wealth or to collect materials or goods or power. You're here in this life to do something and to be uh, of help for other people uh, that are surrounding you.
0: All right, and we're back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, My guest this week here on Canthropology is Vernard Bruning, the pot father, a cannabis pioneer uh, from Amsterdam. And uh, we were talking before the break about the green team and how uh, you had decided to make your exit when things were getting a little too up, uh, scaled up for your tastes. And that was around 1986. Um, and then you, 84, 84. 84, sorry. Um, and then also yep. the, your seed company, the Lowland Seed Company with uh, Case Hokert, uh, did that dissolve as well or did that stay in business?
1: Yeah, it, it slowly dissolved. The, the idea for me to work with Case was that um, at the end of 1980, I saw that Case was in a, in a bad financial situation. And I told Case, you know, uh, you liberated Holland. You made it possible for us to grow because there was that kind of atmosphere that uh, uh, you leave those guys who grow a couple of plants for themselves. You leave them alone. That was sort of the the idea that was uh, uh, created by Case. And I said to him, we're all benefit from it. But I see you're in deep financial trouble all the time. Maybe I can help you by teaching you how to grow uh, really good product sheetless and uh, you can sell it or I can help you sell it whatever but uh, you'd make uh, be able to make some extra money and uh, restore your boat or do whatever and the first couple of years that's what we did. But yeah Casey uh, he was a very much a, very much kind of an anarchist and uh, yeah. <laughs> when I told him you have to carefully dry the cannabis he would say oh yeah I just put it on the deck in the sun <laughs> I was like oh no <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah, never, was... uh, yeah but okay I tried <laughs> to help him and that's what I think morally I should do and uh, that's what I did Yeah, and uh, it did help him a, a bit quite a bit actually but yeah. uh, Commercially it wasn't a successful partner ship yeah so in 1984 85 we stopped the lowland seed company and uh, I started on my own with Bushtronics. Uh,
0: yeah, and that's what that was my next question. I was gonna say uh, soon after leaving the green team, you opened Europe's first cannabis grow shop in the the pip is that how you say it? How do you say that area? in in, in the pipe pipe okay, like like the smoking pipe. Yeah. In the pipe, and it was called, it was a grow shop called Positronics. Uh, Where did the name come from, and and how did you get the idea for that?
1: Um, Well, in the beginning, I I always had a lot of people come to my house, and in the pipe, it was the same thing. When I was uh, uh, growing with that, you know, 80 till 85, we had a gradual growing amount of friends come by and buy seeds from Ed and talk to us about growing, blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of a a logical kind of thing to turn that into a business as well. So when I skipped the green team, um, I registered myself as an independent company and I called it Positronics because uh, it was a combination of positive tronics. uh, Positive meaning that um, if you grow under artificial lights, for instance, uh, everybody could suddenly grow cannabis. And the other thing was that I was uh, still involved in uh, producing table football machines. And uh, I always try to create the best table football machines possible. So to combine those two things, uh, that's why I called it P- Percy because with the the cannabis, I made the money to invest in the table football machines.
0: You know, I never knew you were such a table football enthusiast. I'm learning new things about you, Bernard.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a well, I really... was pretty good at it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I can
1: still play reasonably good football, yeah.
0: All right, well, when I come over to Amsterdam, we'll have to have a a match. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my greatest score, sorry, sorry, buddy, my greatest score is that I I, I won one game of table football against the world champion, who was a Belgian guy. And he was so surprised (laughs) that uh, I I sort of ambushed him. And before he knew it, he lost the game. And after (laughs) that, uh, we we played a couple of a lot of games actually. And I never made more than one or two goals and, and he won them all.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well I'm sure you'll I, I really you'll, like to play. I'm sure you'll kick my ass, but that's okay. We'll just smoke and have some fun. <laughs> um
1: Okay, so, okay.
0: So what what did you guys sell in Positronics? You sold what, lights, nutrients, or did you actually sell seeds? What yeah. what kind of what did you offer there?
1: Yeah, in the beginning it was just uh, old ad seeds and uh, and fertilizers and things like that. And then people started to ask me, you know, we read in the high times that you can grow under artificial lights. And I told them, yeah, sure, pick up the phone and uh, give them a call and try to, uh, to buy these uh, lights. I mean, it's easy. And they said, no, nah, why don't you do that for us? <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I started to phone America and import those lights and sell them to my friends and then, I found a, a cheaper source of lights uh, in England uh, started to import them from England and, and it got so much um, uh, numbers They they were growing that I f- started to look around in Holland and I bought um, equipment in Holland and I designed a different lighting system because in those days uh, Philips was making lights for in greenhouses but there's those uh fixtures they would weigh like five or ten kilos and you can't hang the five or ten kilos on the ceiling in in the in the children's bedroom you know <laughs> uh, so <laughs> i i designed a reflector a lightweight reflector uh, five meters cable and then uh, what is called the ballast in a separate box that you could put on the side in the grow room or outside the grow room so that the heat would not get into the grow room as well. And yeah, I had a friend of mine um, uh, make those uh, uh, sets in a little house that I had in the back of my garden. And uh, I thought, that's it. Now now uh, it's over. But it turned out to become a different business again. And um, I had to pl- employ more and more people to uh, get those sets together. And it uh, became a business it became a serious business. And I had to rent a different building. So my house was too small. So I started to rent a building in the Cornelis Trostraat. And then each year or so I would rent another building next to it until I had like, seven buildings, or seven places next to one another in the Cornelis Trostrad. And I had about 60 people. I employed 60 people. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Ridiculous. But you know, those 60 people, one of the the things that I really cared was that they all had to be smokers. You know? I didn't (laughs) want to work with people who weren't smoking. Yeah. But the disadvantage is that when you have like 60 people who are all smoking, they only produce the work of, let's say, 30 people. Because they're constantly stoned and chatting and this and that. So I had an enormous amount of wages to pay every month. And uh, we weren't really productive, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun and uh, uh, we had a lot of people come to our place and uh, we had a show grow so that people could just uh, look at it. It was a small room with a couple of lights and a couple of plants and that you could really see in a glimpse and you had to just look for it for five minutes and then you knew how you should grow, you know. Uh, have a couple of lights, have a couple of exhausts, an air cleaner, things like that, growing pots. And uh, the idea was to set an example and to teach people how to do it themselves. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's I, I, what we did.
0: I read somewhere that you were also involved with the uh, company, the nutrient company BioBiz. Is that true?
1: Yeah. So in uh, the uh we started to make our own fertilizers, uh, fertilizers. Uh, we started to make mixtures potting around. Um, and the whole fertilizer business was just as a service to my customers, but it gradually became bigger and bigger. And because it was done in Amsterdam, in my backyard, there was a shed where we mixed the soil. Uh, it started to smell a lot, you know, like uh, uh, the manure the <laughs> and the cows and things like that. You smell that. And, and, and it became a nuisance. And I, um, I knew a guy called Jetze who was uh, living far away in Groningen. And uh, I knew him for years because I was growing in his garden uh, with all that in the, in the past. And I said to Jetze, well, uh, why don't you start to make these fertilizers for us? Um, and just sell them to us because uh, it's too much work and it smells too, too much. And um, he, uh, he started to do that. I told him what to do, gave him the names, you know, like premix, fish mix, all mix, uh, light mix, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he started to produce that for us and later for everybody else. And now he's sort of uh, almost a multinational. He sells to Spain and Ireland and England and all over the world.
0: No, so I yeah. uh, Positronics ended up closing in ninety seven. Is that right? What can you tell us about what happened? Yeah. Why it closed?
1: Um, well, I had a couple of guys. Uh, the, um, there was no control, you know. Uh, I, I believe that everybody who was a smoker was honest. That's sorry to say, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> yeah. So I employed a couple of people who were thinking I was crazy, and maybe I was, uh, and they uh, started to steal things. Uh, And they did things like uh, have uh, friends drop by, uh, buy sort of a cart full of uh, growing materials and pretend they were paying at the till and they were paying maybe a hundred bucks but they were carrying out for thousands of, uh, of guilders oh boy. And, and we wouldn't notice because we were stoned, you know, we were seeing, oh, a nice customer, oh, he has a cart full of lights and this and that, oh, he's paying at the till, but that he was only paying 100 guilders. Oh <laughs> that boy. wasn't something that we looked at. So, um, the stealing got uh, ridiculous and uh, at a certain stage I couldn't pay uh, for, uh, how do you call it, social taxes. Uh, uh, As an employer, you have to pay 30% in Holland of their wages to the taxman for all sorts of insurances. And at a certain stage, I suddenly couldn't pay uh, these things anymore. I didn't know why and how or what. But um, when uh, a lawyer came in, and he took over control. uh, That's what you do when you get uh, bankrupt. He said to me, you know, half of the lights that you assembled were not sold. I mean, we can see that they were bought and that they were produced, but we can never see that they were sold. So uh, the stealing was enormous. Um, And yeah, you can do two things, say that it's terrible and uh, have a grudge against those people and whatever. But in a way, I'm glad they did this because it forced me to uh, go uh, look for different things in the cannabis world. And and that different thing for me was uh, medical marijuana. And and if they wouldn't have robbed me, I would maybe still have a grow shop. I don't know. Yeah. But that would be a waste for a lot of patients.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say so that next uh, next you were ready to shift gears again, uh, as you as you yep. so often did in your life and career, um, and focus mm-hmm. on medical marijuana. I, I've heard you say uh, in, in another interview that you had a kind of epiphany about it. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day I woke up uh, and I had a line in Dutch in my head and that was saying, Mediviet and anders niet, uh, and medical marijuana and nothing else. That's sort of how you translate it. And Mediviet was a, a non-existing Dutch word, was a non-existing word. And for days I, I kept thinking about it until I realized that if I would use, uh, get the name Mediviet Uh, used as if it is normal Dutch, a lot of people would get a different attitude towards cannabis smoking. Because when they would realize that you can use cannabis not only for smoking, but also uh, medicinal or semi-medicinal, they would get more respect for the product. Yeah. Um, And uh, also I saw that there were a lot of people who were not uh, helped adequately with synthetic medication. I saw people who had such serious tremor, you know, shaking of their hands and limbs that they were actually invalid. They couldn't drink a glass of water without somebody else helping them. But when they took a few tokes, uh, things quieted down and they could lead a reasonable life on their own. So I saw that cannabis can be very important Uh, Medicinally for certain people who are not adequately helped with synthetic medication. So that was in the beginning my motivation to uh, uh, put a lot of effort into Mediweed.
0: This was around the same time that medical marijuana was gaining big steam in the United States too. Proposition 215 in California. You know, it was the first medical marijuana law passed, and that passed in nineteen ninety six. So it's was, it, it was it seemed like. Did you did you know about what was going on in the U.S. or did you just kind of come to the no, same conclusion?
1: I, I did run into gradually. I I ran into a couple of Americans who came by tourists, you know, and said that they held up a bag of marijuana and said, "This is my medicine." And I was, in the beginning, thought, geez, you know, this guy's crazy. I mean, that's not a medicine. That's just a bag of grass. What is she talking about? <laughs> uh, in the beginning, I, I didn't know that. It was really uh, useful as a, as, a, as a medicine. But um, these Americans made me aware of that um, and, and uh, you know, taught me that you can do more things with it than just smoke it for fun.
0: Yeah. So, and then you, so you started uh, uh, an organization called the Stichting Medivit, uh, the Medical Marijuana Foundation. Tell us a little about yep. how that how that came about and what the mission was.
1: Well, in the beginning, I was approached by a lot of ordinary people who said, uh, oh, "I have a sleeping disorder, or I have some pain, blah blah blah. What can I do?" And what I would do is uh, send them some cannabis leaves and tell them, uh, teach them how to make tea out of it and tell them to grow some for themselves or look for people who were growing it, ask if you could use the leaves or go to a coffee shop, whatever. And that was going on for maybe five or six years um, until I found out that uh, I saw a movie called Run from the Cure. Yeah. Uh, And it was a movie about a, Canadian guy called Rick Simpson. And Rick Simpson was uh, growing a lot of uh, uh, cannabis plants back in his garden. And he was making an oil out of it, which he gave to people. And the oil was made and then put in the syringe. And he gave these syringes or sold them, I don't know, to patients. And he claimed that um, it was a, a thing, a medicine that could help solve all sorts of problems, including cancer. If you just use 60 grams in 30 days or 30 grams in 60 days, sorry, uh, it would even cure cancer. And um, yeah, for me, that was an interesting story. So back home, I started to try it and I made uh, this hemp oil or this cannabis oil or THC oil, or how do you want to call it? And I found out two things that was that it was really hard to get into a syringe. And the other thing was it was also really hard to get it out because <laughs> uh, when you squeeze, yeah, when you squeeze the lever, uh, you don't get out one drop, but you get out a squirt, you know. And in the beginning, I got out of the squirt and it fell on my kitchen th- sink. And I thought, oh, geez, what a waste. And I uh, put my finger on it and stuck it in my mouth the same way <laughs> as I saw Rick Simpson's patients do that in the movie. And then, of course, I got really, really high after half an hour or something like that. And then I knew I have to find something um, to make it more accessible, uh, user-friendly, and also to find out a way to uh, produce it in such a way that everybody could do it safely at home. Because what I saw Rick Simpson do was just dump a lot of marijuana into a bucket and then pour some alcohol or other solvent on it. And mix it with the stick of wood, and just uh, put it in a rice cooker, and then evaporate all the alcohol so that you would uh, have some pure oil left. And that is something that is rather uh, you need a lot of cannabis, which wasn't uh, possible in Holland. Yeah. Uh, and you need a lot of space because you evaporate a lot of alcohol, and you can't do that in a regular house. And in the example Rick sent, said was just do it in the barn or uh, outside. And, and that was impossible in Holland. So I started to figure out a way to uh, evaporate the alcohol, but on a smaller scale, um, and that was the, the Um I patented it. And the other thing was that the oil was too strong. I mean, you had to take a dosage the size of a grain of rice. But when you do that a couple of times, there's always one day in which you take a little bit too much. And when you take a little bit too much, you get really high. And that means that after that event, you'll always be too careful. You never take as much as you could have because you want to avoid to get high. So what I did was I diluted the pure cannabis oil with olive oil so that uh, you can i would dilute it three times five times or even ten times because when you take it per drop you can uh, dosage it per drop exactly and after a while you know that if you take five drops you get high so if you're really in pain you can take four drops without getting high yeah but then you're using the maximum of thc And, and that is uh much easier to administer than just say oh take a grain of rice of pure oil, because what is a grain of rice? I mean, uh, when you take a few hits of a joint, the grain of rice can be twice as big, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so I thought ah, it needs to be simple so that everybody can do it and that everybody can use it. Uh, not only the people who have cancer, but also uh, people who have all sorts of minor problems and that you can also administer to, uh, to kids and to... Dogs and cats and things like that. Yeah. You have to control the amount of active substance, and that uh, can be done by diluting it three times, five times, or ten times.
0: Yeah. And so, just to clarify, the cannulator is a device that creates a, a Rick Simpson-like oil. It creates—is that what it does?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, what you do is uh, it's a, it's a glass tube with a little hole at the bottom, very little hole, very small hole, and you fill the glass tube with cannabis. Uh, you put it in a in a holder. And then you pour alcohol uh, in in the tube at the top, and what it does is at the end, uh, at the bottom, the alcohol starts coming out a little hole. And in the beginning, the alcohol is full with uh, THC oil, and at the end, when you pour it in a liter, let's say, uh, there's no THC oil mere left in the cannabis and also not in the in the alcohol. So you find out how much alcohol you need to pour in the marijuana to have. The maximum effect and in our case that is about six times the amount of weight so when you use 20 grams of cannabis you pour on 120 or 150 milliliters of alcohol and with that you can control the amount of alcohol because alcohol can get expensive
0: yeah
1: um, and you can get a product that is always kind of similar when you do this in the states uh you're Uh, cannabis oil can be the same strength as when I do it over here in Holland or somebody else does it on on the Antarctic you get a product that can be comparable in strength and when you say "Oh, uh, you made some oil for yourself five times diluted oh then you know that if you take more than three drops you'll get high Uh, it's a much consumer friendlier approach than working with percentages because percentages are totally um, hard yeah, to of measure. Another world, let's say. Yeah, yeah. they're they're not hippie style. <laughs> <laughs> they're not consumer friendly. Yeah they yeah. the company friendly, but not consumer friendly.
0: Yeah, I get it. That's um, so. I know there's there's a a gentleman over there uh, who's been helping a lot of patients with the, uh, with the oil for some years, and I know he's facing um, uh, like a, a court battle right now over it, named uh, Renis Bentama. And uh, yeah. is, is is he affiliated with you and the foundation, or is he is he on his own thing?
1: He's on his own, and I know him uh, on him rather well. And, um, yeah, uh, I was in his radio show three days ago. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He just has a different approach. He wants to face uh, the government in in a lawsuit. And and I was like, okay, when you do that, go ahead. Uh, But, um, see, in the beginning, I was selling THC oil to my patients. But it became such a business success that when I had about 10,000 patients or so, um, I faced a similar situation as I had before in the cannabis world. It became too big. And I said to my patients, listen, if the government finds out, they'll stop me and you'll be in trouble. So what I'll do is I'll figure out a way so that I can teach you to make it yourselves. And, and that way became the cannolater, and I patented it. And ever since then I stopped selling THC oil. And I, I taught a lot of people with uh, with uh, courses and with uh, videos to make it themselves. And that sort of opened the way for a lot of other people uh, to take my place as a producer. And Rines is just one of them. Yeah, And he's the biggest. Yeah, And he's also the boldest.
0: <laughs> <And> he <laughs> sure. wants to
1: find the government. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if you like to do that, it's not my kind of tea, not my cup of tea. But if you're able to do so, hey, go ahead. Uh, yeah yeah uh, the, the main thing is that people get helped. and sure. if they get helped by somebody like Renus or get help from somebody like me who teaches them uh, to make it themselves or somebody else a uh, fake figure on the internet I don't care people need help
0: absolutely um, all right I'm going to yeah. take one more I'm going to take one more quick break okay. uh, we'll be right back uh, here on Canthropology with more from Bernard Bruning.
1: Natural substances produce the results that CBD is producing in the animals that we are testing on.
0: It's a dog's life with Angela Ardolino, only on Cannabis Radio. All right, everybody, and welcome back to the show. So, Bernard, I wanted to ask you, um, as someone who's helped create the coffee shop industry in Amsterdam and who's been heavily involved in the cannabis community across the Netherlands, uh, I just wanted to get your take on what's been going on there now regarding the crackdown on the drug and sex tourism. Uh, I mean, obviously, cannabis was never technically legal in the Netherlands. It was only tolerated. But um, it seems like the liberal open-mindedness seems to be changing. I know the new mayor... Um, has been cracking down in 2007 they passed a rule that they couldn't sell alcohol in 2012 they invented the weed pass trying to ban uh, non-residents from the shops and now in 2016 they passed another rule saying coffee shops can't be within 250 meters of a school which uh, which actually caused the mellow yellow the new mellow yellow to, to close down. Um, so with all this going on with the new mayor, what she's trying to do, uh, I know the coffee shop owners uh, and the union are very much against it and they're fighting it. Uh, in your mind, what's what, why is it happening and, and what, can, what, if anything, can be done to stop it?
1: Um, I don't think it can be stopped, um, but uh, that works two ways. I mean, the Amsterdam example, let's call it like that, was uh, spread enough amongst enough people already So that you'll have much of that atmosphere in America now and in all sorts of other countries all over Europe Uh, and the the ghost is out of the box. So they're still trying to um, reduce the spiritual freedom that you get from smoking cannabis, but they're too late, you know, uh, they're too late and they've never accepted uh, cannabis uh, and cannabis smokers, uh, they've always been trying to reduce their freedom. So that's nothing new, but they're too late. I mean, I think that uh, uh, the kind of atmosphere that we just spoke about uh, in the mellow da- yellow days in the beginning, I think you can find them now in the States as well in certain locations. Uh, and I think it's a good thing because people need uh, to relax. But also need to relax with uh, certain substances or drugs, uh, and cannabis is the ideal drug for for humans. Um, uh, it makes people more human. Alcohol makes people more unhuman. Hmm. You know. Yeah. And I think that in future we need uh, a society that's much more influenced and controlled by the soft-minded people. Uh, the days of the warriors uh, are hopefully over, and if we don't look out, uh, watch out, we we'll get a third world war uh, soon. Yeah. But uh, the future is about the uh, how do you call it? Jesus says the uh, zachtmoedige the people with a, a friendly mind. You know, yeah. they need to get uh, get control over the future, and then all these other people that constantly talking about. Uh, solutions in terms of war—the you know, war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on whatever—I hmm. mean, uh, that's that's old-fashioned stuff. Yeah. Uh, we need to get rid of those kind of people.
0: So you think yeah. you think the ban is going to go into effect in Amsterdam and tourists are not going to be allowed in the shops? Because I mean, I I plan to return to Amsterdam, uh, you know, in, in the near future after COVID restrictions are lifted and uh, work with Jair on the museum stuff. And I would be heartbroken if I wasn't allowed to go into any shops.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would suck. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if 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 it will become that uh, ridiculous. I don't think so. I mean, that's kind of impossible because uh, there are a lot of people who speak, uh, who don't speak Dutch, who are living in Amsterdam. And what do you do with those people? Um, I mean, you can't segregate people just because of the language or, or uh, the nationality. Uh, that's old stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope that when I do get to come back over that hopefully maybe we could get together in person for a nice smoke sesh or a meal or something and uh you know I yep. was I was wondering um you know we have you know I don't know how much uh Yair has told you about the collection and stuff but we have a he has quite a nice uh, collection of artifacts and artwork and I was wondering do you happen to have any old stuff from the old days photos or memorabilia that, you know still around that that we could maybe use for one of the exhibits?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I exported it all to a friend of mine, Noel van Schaik. Oh,
0: yeah. Uh, that's
1: maybe his name, you know. Sure. And he has a, a house in Spain. Uh, and Noel died recently. But um, all these things I, I, I gave to him um, to safe keep it. And uh, everything is there, including a, a mellow yellow table and a lot of pictures and things like that. Wow. And for me, I don't like to... How do you call it? Uh, be always busy with the past. So Sure. Uh, the mellow yellow days are long gone, long over. Of course. And, and if you let those things go, then you can start something new. And as you've heard in my life, I started all over a couple of times. And each time you can create something else. And I don't want to... Uh, be the rest of the, of my life the guy who started the first coffee shop. I mean, who cares? Well, that's already
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: that's 50 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> who cares?
0: You know. Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned uh, Noel passed away. Also, Keys uh, passed away a few years ago. Uh, I don't what year. I don't know what year it was that he passed away, but it was a while ago. Me neither. Um,
1: do y- you, know, you? know what I think is important. Uh, what I think is important later that you can put on my gravestone, <laughs> necessary is. And what I did for medical marijuana and uh, diluting THC oil, but also diluting CBD oil. Um, when I first diluted CBD oil, I introduced it at one of the high times events under the name of um, something new, cannabis uh, novelty, you know. And uh, I had about, I made 50, maybe 500 little bottles with uh, diluted CBD oil. And that was sort of my entry for for a cannabis cup uh under the name of new cannabis products and i came to um, the building where the cannabis uh, judges were seated and i uh, said oh i have a new idea and that is to dilute cbt oil that is also medicinally effective and you don't get high from it and cbd oil can be regularly bought uh in uh, in uh, czechoslovakia and things like that And it's really healthy and it's sort of a step between THC oil and the regular uh, folks who don't want to get high. And it's a a very good idea, blah, blah, blah. And they they didn't like the idea. They said, (laughs) "Ah, it's nonsense. Uh, Diluted, it It needs to be as strong as possible. The same way as with cannabis, the stronger the better. I was like, yeah, that's maybe interesting for smokers. But patients don't want uh, their medicine to be as strong as possible. They want it to be as weak as possible, but it still be effective. Yeah. Uh, and they were like oh yeah well uh, we already know the winner and they showed me a syringe with uh, uh, pure cbd oil from the states and they said it's like $300 a syringe and that is a good idea and that's the way to make money and blah blah, blah. And i was like no i don't believe so but uh, they yeah. said oh just leave your uh, leave your bottles and put them in the corner and we'll give them to the judges and uh. <laughs> yeah and that was uh, yeah 2013 i think yeah
0: yeah so okay, so as the man who is known for reinventing himself many times over, uh, what's next for you? What what's next? Any other new projects or ideas on your horizon?
1: Well, I think that um, yeah, I want to uh, really get into uh, helping more patients because recently um, I got approached by a guy who wanted a, a private consult with me. And I never give private consults because I said I have too much time and this and that. And I don't want to ask money from patients and so and so. He said, yeah, but I have a son and he has too red and really in trouble. And I really have a private sit down with you. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. He said, I'll offer you 5000 euros. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll get my agenda. Just a second. <laughs> Yeah. So I made an appointment with this guy because I thought he's, he's sent by the universe and he's going to teach me something. I need to know what it is. So he came over with his son and uh, uh, his son was really suffering from Tourette. He had a lot of pain. Uh, he didn't have a real life. He was constantly moving and things like that. And I gave him two drops of THC and within 10, 15 minutes it was over. And then I realized I really must focus on patience and I'm a CBD producer in Holland, and yes, I produce the later, but I really need to focus on patients, and especially on children, because we adults deny THC to children because we say it's a drug. But at the same time, we give them all sorts of medication against uh, attention deficit disorder, autism, uh, to that, and things like that. And because it's just children, they can't say no. But these medications are very harmful, and we give them to children, and and these children can be helped with just a couple of drops of THC. And I realized that this guy taught me was sent to me to teach me that I really have to focus on helping children. So that's what I'm going to do the next uh, couple of years.
0: That's that's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a noble mission, and I'm sure that you will uh, succeed in it as you as you always have. Um, Well,
1: (laughs) the universe uh, tried to bribe me, and and they succeeded. (laughs) Because this guy gave me 5,000 euros. And when I received him, he said, yeah, you know, uh, a week later he phoned me, he says, I'm so uh, glad that you helped my son because my son has never been so quiet and relaxed and uh, happy uh, since uh, he's, for the first time in 20 years, I've sent you another 5,000 euros. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. okay <laughs>
1: lesson, lesson learned yeah. point yeah. Yeah. Uh
0: any any final thoughts before we sign off
1: I think we don't realize how much cannabis changed the world I don't think we realize enough how much our present world is influenced by cannabis it started with uh, the Beatles and the Stones they were all cannabis smokers and, and look at where we are now in the old days you could not walk the streets With the clothes that you see adults walking around in today, uh, all the colors, all the differences, uh, that was impossible. And I think that cannabis is really a useful tool for humans to look at things from a different angle and get to new ideas.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I I agree 100%. We need
1: it. We need it. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, Bernard, thank you so much for uh, just a wonderful interview, and uh, we appreciate your your time and your wisdom. And uh, it's been a, it's been a real honor and a and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, thank uh, you for giving me the opportunity to have one more time to talk about the past. <laughs> okay,
0: be well, sir. Thank
1: yeah? you. Okay, boy. Well, Take care. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye, bye.
0: All right, and that's gonna be a wrap for another episode of Canthropology. Uh, for more information about the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology@gmail.com. gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click the subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd like to give a quick shout-out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.